0: Hi, I'm Samir Kaji, your host of Venture Unlocked, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the business of venture capital. On this week's episode, I'm thrilled to bring you my conversation with Jason Schumann, a partner with New York based Primary Venture Partners. The firm leads seed rounds for companies in New York and has previously invested in companies such as Jet, Mirror, and Latch. Earlier this year, the company raised two funds totaling $200 million. Before joining Primary in 2018, he spent time as chief of staff for GLG founder Mark Gerson was an associate at Corrigin Ventures, and founded and ran a company called Category 5 from 2011 to 2015. I found Jason to be really thoughtful, and we had a great conversation on things like finding alignment when you join a firm, the tangible KPIs they use to measure success on what type of value they're providing founders, and his view of New York and the market as a whole. Now let's get into the episode to hear all of that and more. Today's episode is sponsored by Pacific Western Bank, a full service commercial bank with over 34 billion in assets. The venture banking team at PacWest specializes in financial products and services for both startups and the venture and private equity funds that back them. I've worked with many of their team members over the last two decades, and I can attest to their commitment to bringing a high touch and personalized experience for every startup and fund manager client they have. So whether you're a founder or a fund manager at any stage of development, and you wanna find out more, check them out at www.hackwest.com. Jason, it's so great to have you on the show and thanks for, uh, for joining us. Thanks for having me, man. Appreciate it. Let's go back a little bit. I know you're, you're now you know, investing out at Fund3, but what led you into uh, becoming a venture investor and getting interested in startups?
1: Yeah, so I'm, I'm from Boston originally, and I grew up in a family of entrepreneurs. You know, my dad was running his own company, my aunts and uncles, my cousins. It felt like everybody was running their own thing. Uh, so I became obsessed with startups when I was pretty young. Like literally in middle school, I was writing business plans for like mobile payments on flip phones. And, you know, high school, went to work at this identity theft protection company that was run by my aunt and uncle. And, you know, they had a former VC from SoftBank working over there at the time. And, I just learned a ton from them about you know, A-B testing and customer acquisition and LTV, and I just became a total nerd around uh, startups more broadly, which ended up taking me down to the University of Miami for college, where I studied entrepreneurship and marketing and launched my first company, which was a direct-to-consumer footwear company back in 2011. It was good timing, but uh, pretty bad execution, if I could say so myself. Uh, So, you know, when you can't operate, go ahead and invest is is sometimes what I joke about. But um, literally about a year out of school, you know, we we had gotten the thing around profitability, but you know, co-founder breakups, cash flow issues with that company, I just decided to wind it down. You know, I couldn't imagine myself really doing it for the next 10 years. And sitting there as a 23 year old in Boston at the time at home. I was like, what do I want to do next? And I didn't have the confidence to start a new company. And, you know, I didn't know if I really wanted to go operate at a friend's company, but this thing called venture capital became super interesting. Really at the beginning, it was for four reasons. You know, the first one was I could learn about different industries nonstop. And I'm a huge nerd. And so doing that was great. Number two was I wanted to be able to fundraise easier and, and number three, was really that I could meet a better team for the next time around, you know? And you only know an A player when you've seen it. And I felt like VC would put me at the forefront of meeting some of the best operators really in the world. And lastly, like venture really aligns with my why in life and I'm sure we'll get more into this, but you know, the idea of being able to go help others, like give them the confidence, the skill set, the tools, the relationships to live a more successful, fulfilling life. Venture really aligns with that. So. I uh, drove for Uber at night and sourced deals during the day for free and eventually found myself uh, getting a 90-day trial offer from the guys over at Corrigin Ventures to be their first hire. and The rest has been history.
0: So you started at uh, which at the time was the venture arm of the parent company. Ultimately, did that for a while and worked then, I think, with Mark Gerson of, of GLG. You and I have talked about that offline. That was an interesting experience where you got exposure to a lot of different things. It wasn't just traditional venture. Tell us a little bit about the experience with Mark.
1: Mark Gerson's an incredible guy. Um, He did an incredible job building GLG to the behemoth that it is. I would say the quiet behemoth that it is actually in New York City, being a billion dollar plus marketplace business. Uh, But he's also an incredible philanthropist and it has his hands in so many buckets. So when I came over there to really like get the family office like stood up. I was doing a slew of different activities. One was venture capital investing. The second was we were working on incubating companies. The next was LP investing. We had some philanthropic efforts that I was involved in in Israel and Africa. And then the last thing that I was supposed to be doing was uh, spinning up a mentor network between ultra high net worths and pro athletes. So one of the first people that actually uh, we onboarded was a guy by the name of Kelvin Beecham, uh, who has gone above and beyond all expectations you know, that I ever had you know, in terms of his investing career now, and really become like a brother to me in many ways. Um, but about six months into that gig, I actually got pulled into a portfolio company of Mark's to operate again. So at that point, I was doing both operating raising some capital for the company, and also uh, investing in startups. So it was a heck of a time and you know, it really made me have a lot of empathy for founders even more uh, because of the fact that during my first startup, I didn't raise venture. But during that one, I was a big part of the process and going out and fundraising.
0: It's such a unique experience to be able to run so many different things from you know, investing directly into early stage startups to doing LP investments to working with debt funds, and you probably learned a lot of how the investment world works and the fact that there are so many ways you can make money and there's so many ways to capitalize companies. At a certain point, you probably were deciding, like, what do I do with my life and on a go forward basis and where, do you, where you spend your time? You ultimately went to primary ventures. And my presumption is that there was a lot of things that you learned during your time with Mark that really shaped your view on the type of firm you wanted to join. Walk us through exactly the decision model you had of, hey, I'm going to join primary, not another firm, not start my own. What was that like? And take us inside your head at that point.
1: Yeah. So I need to give credit to Ash Egan. You know, he had actually just launched his own fund, uh, Acrylic, which is in the crypto space. But Ash and I were having a conversation when I kind of hit this point that I knew I wanted to move on. I knew I wanted to go back into venture full time. And I went through this exercise that was like, what do I want out of my next gig? And like, what do I want to optimize for? And I went down to my notebook and I wrote down the different types of funds that like fundamentally existed at Seed and you know on one side of the spectrum you have these funds that are like spray and pray come over here hustle your you know your butt off go and network non-stop but like write 250k checks in 30 40 companies a year and like you're networking mainly with vcs because at the end of the day like that's where you're probably going to get a lot of your deal flow from on the other side of the spectrum i was like do i want to go to a multi-stage fund you know, these guys are starting to come down the stack and they're starting to like, you know, get some seed practice going. And, and do I wanna start that for them? Because I've always considered myself, you know, relatively entrepreneurial. But then in like the middle of the spectrum was like the absolute sweet spot and like what I love. And honestly, like life is too short for you to do something that isn't what you love. And that sweet spot for me was like high conviction hands-on investing at the seed stage. And that meant leading deals, and it meant leading very few deals a year. And so when I drew each one of those buckets, I wrote the firms down below each one of those buckets that I knew or that I had worked with. And in one day, I had sent out about 35 emails to folks saying, You know, hey, so-and-so, I've really enjoyed getting to know you. I'm thinking about my next move. Would love to have a conversation. Now, that weekend, I got a phone call from Luke Schoenfelder at Latch. And Luke said to me, hey, man, I think you really need to talk to Ben and Brad. They just, like, announced their second fund, $100 million. From an investment strategy perspective, you guys are super aligned. And like, they're just great humans. And so I met up with Ben uh, at Le Pen quotidien, like, uh, you know, on Broadway and 21st that morning. And what was supposed to be like a 30 minute meeting turned into two hours. And what I realized was that from a strategy perspective, we were literally the most aligned that you could get. I mean, fundamentally, we believe that at the earliest stages, there's many ways to make money, but Startups are hard, and founders deserve better. So, if we're focused, and we're pushing them to be focused, we need to be even more focused. So, it's like we're New York only, we're seed only, we only lead, and we're trying to bring a tank to a knife fight. Like we invest more in our portfolio impact team than anybody else. And you know, when I was looking at funds, and, and you know, in full transparency, there was a few that I was at the offer stage with and some that were even giving me offers to make more money or have a better title from day one. But when you have two firms that have the exact same AUM and one firm has a team of 13 people and out of that, more than half are on portfolio impact and the other firm is only a couple of you know, GPs and a platform person, you know, I said to myself, like, which side of history do I wanna be on? And, and ultimately, uh, I am where I am today.
0: Looking back then, you sort of go through this decision model, which sounds very thoughtful, right? You've kind of force-ranked what you cared about. You had this view that primary in itself and the partners were just incredibly aligned with the way you thought about it. But going into a new firm, especially a firm that's already established, you had a couple partners with Ben and Brad that had worked together for a long time. And a lot of firms have struggled with integrating new senior investment professionals having the seat at the table, having a culture. How did you yourself think about those intangibles when joining? What has Primary done right to be able to integrate new people in a way that provides really long-term viability in the right culture?
1: Ben and Brad get a ton of credit for this. I think it starts with trust. When they go out to find new people to bring on the team, the interview process is not just about like getting to know you as a person, but it's like getting to the place where they feel like they can really trust you. If I can give a piece of advice to like young investors that are going into a firm with an established partnership, it's really that like the skill of, you know, quote unquote, getting a deal done is really about trying to help build consensus. And if you can't build consensus, It's about uh, articulating your framework from an investment evaluation perspective and getting people to see your point of view and your perspective. You know, at the end of the day, we have an investment framework internally where we write down a list of gotta beliefs in any investment. And it's like, if you believe in X, Y, and Z, then we should be doing this investment. And the thing is, in a diligence process, Maybe two out of the three got to believe you can diligence and check that box and say, that's obvious. Like, let's just say that's completely obvious. But the third one is the one that gets debated the most. And at the end, you know, you never know. Like, one person could be right and the other person could be wrong. But this is the type of business where we're arguing about things that nobody really fundamentally knows the answer today. And so if you're working with people whose point of view you trust and you think they're really smart and they work their butt off and have learned through years of experience, then you're going to give them the leash. And, you know, my credit, I think, to to Ben and Brad is that they've given me the leash to really go out and, and try to get deals done and to win the trust of entrepreneurs and to work super closely with them. You know, and I, I hope that I've proven them right in uh, and, and, and giving me that trust. And I hope that that continues.
0: It's also a challenge on the other side of the coin. If you're entering into an established partnership to have, in some ways, the confidence to be able to have a voice at the table, imposter syndrome, I think, is a, a very real thing for a number of people. In fact, I, I'd say the, most, the majority of people in the industry have some level of imposter syndrome, regardless of how successful they become it's even tougher when you, you know, the longer a partnership's been around, the longer those people have worked together. What advice would you impart to somebody that's joining a successful firm with an established partnership in overcoming some of those things that relates to imposter syndrome and just integrating with a new set of uh, family members?
1: I think it requires two things. One, The education piece that I just brought up, I think is really important. You know, Angus Davis at Foundation, I think did an incredible job bringing his partnership up to speed on the challenger bank space. And he was able to, you know, essentially just show them the deep dive and the work that he put in to really figuring out everything and anything he could about the space and showing them the framework that he had. And by being able to do that, he was able to build trust and I think, you know, their conviction in him. In terms of, you know, how to completely remove quote unquote like imposter syndrome, I think imposter syndrome is one of those things that most seed stage investors, you can have it, but it probably is gonna end up lasting your entire career. And the reason being is that the when you look back on your best investments. Good luck trying to connect all of the dots aside from the fact that like the people were really, really good and the timing was really, really great and the market was really, really big. If I can get this one piece of advice across, it's like you're being paid for your opinion. You know, Ryan Friedman said that to me super early on when I was at Corrigin and said, you know, I'm paying you for your opinion. And that was on like day 15 of my job sitting in an office when I really didn't know anything. And ever since then, I've started to just, you know, continue to think and reframe imposter syndrome where it's like, you know what, everybody's an imposter because most people, especially at Seed, yes, there is skill. And yes, you're putting yourself in the position to succeed and you're meeting the right founders and you're getting into the right circles. But if you look back at all of these investment theses um, or the investment memos on certain deals that worked out, maybe 50% of it's right, maybe 80% of it's right. So, you just don't know. And I think the more that you can get comfortable with the unknown, which I know we all, you know, like to control as much as possible, because most of us are type A, but like the unknown is real. So imposter syndrome, uh, why they continue to persist, or you should believe it's fake.
0: And it's it's probably uh, something that all of us have to get comfortable with to a certain degree and, and understand why we're in a certain position to be able to provide those type of opinions, knowing that we're going to be wrong a lot. And and that's just the nature of the business. Speaking of the business itself, you mentioned something that I found really interesting, and I like it, which is you know bringing a tank to uh, to a knife fight. I would say the world has evolved so dramatically over the last fifteen months or so that you could probably pack in multiple lifetimes. The game of venture has changed with so many different firms, company formations, valuations, and it feels like we're entering in an environment where funds have to sort of adjust how they approach winning deals. You've taken a primary, fewer companies per portfolio, indexing heavily on a team that helps these entrepreneurs. Tell us why that matters so much today.
1: Founders are getting married to venture firms for the next 10 years, right? If they're successful.
0: And
1: at the earliest stages, there are many things that a founder at the seed stage cannot afford. They're not going to be able to go out and hire a chief people officer who has scaled the company from 20 to 500 people. They're not going to be able to hire the chief revenue officer you know, from a company that's scaled to $200 million of ARR. They're not going to be able to hire the CFO from a company that got acquired for $400 million. These things just aren't resources that they can get on their own. But they are resources that we as primary have and will continue to invest in and bring full time onto our team so we can provide those resources to the companies that we're trying to work with. So when we meet with founders, you know, not only are we introducing them to Rebecca Price who came over from Capsule and Enigma or Cassie Young who came over from Sale and CM Group, but we're introducing them to the other three people on our market development team who are going out and helping you with sales and go to market, and the two other recruiters and community people, and the person on the marketing side of things that can really help them think about things in a way that they probably wouldn't be able to without the resources that we're providing them with. The other thing I will say is that, you know, as a young partner at a fund who's trying to win deals, having these people by your side who, by the way, are a hundred times better at the things that they do than I am, and I don't care which fund you go to, who the partner is, unless they've done that job, specifically that job, not the CEO, done that one job, they're not going to be better than their old CRO most likely in scaling up the function. So by applying these people from a value add perspective, it makes it easier for me to win deals. And then at the same time, you know, we fundamentally believe it's great to bring on board what's called board partners, who are folks that can come into the boardroom alongside uh, people like myself to provide that other support in the boardroom. And those are people like Scott Norton, who started Sir Kensington, or Jason Herenstein, who is the CFO uh, or is the CFO over at Flyer and Health. These are people that are going in alongside us and trying to provide even more pointed feedback. Because not only have they seen the earliest stages, but they've seen the latest stages and have been in the weeds and more recently. So if there's anything we can do to help a founder get 10X the value out of us and not just us as a one single person team, uh, that's exactly
0: what we're gonna optimize for. There's something embedded in there that speaks to being a service provider versus just a pure investment firm. And I've always said that as an investor, you're selling a commodity, which is capital and in markets that are like the ones today where there's founders have so many different options, you have to actually provide something above and beyond that consistently. And it has to actually be meaningful to founders. And and I want to get into this a little bit more because there's a lot of skepticism because a lot of venture funds say, we add value beyond the investment. You've built a team around certain capacities that drive value to these founders. The first question I have around that is, How did you think about which pain points you wanted to solve for in recruiting that team that you built? And you mentioned some of those, but tell us a little bit of what went into that team build.
1: I can't take any credit for it because it happened long before me, but, you know, fundamentally from a framework perspective, we asked ourselves the question of what are the resources that seed stage founders wish that they could have, but they can't afford today? And that's how we came up with, like, recruiting. So on the recruiting side, we save our companies nearly $3 million a year in recruiting fees. And time to placement is, like, 50% of time to placement for companies who are trying to hire on their own. I mean, you think about that, and you think about a CEO's job, and maybe 20 25% of their time at the seed stage is going on LinkedIn and cold-messaging people. And it's, like, the unlock of time is incredible. And speed with these companies is absolutely imperative. It's like a number one priority when we think about what makes a great founder. And if you can't get butts in seats in 45 days and it takes 75, that's a huge gap. And so if we can bring recruiters in to support you, and by the way, because we only focus on New York, we've built this massive database of thousands of people who we've also back-channeled. So we're not sending you people that we don't know at all. We're sending you high-quality candidates with higher conversion rates, with higher success rates. And by being able to do that, we feel better about the opportunity for you to succeed or the probability for you to succeed. And it's the same thing on the go-to-market side with relationships. So we can make all sorts of introductions there. We can coach you know, a lot of your executive team on that side. We can coach the junior team on that side. And then on the finance side, I think a lot of seed stage investors um, don't love diving into the weeds on the financial modeling and projection side and the cohort analyses and really cutting up all the data. So we've brought on folks that love doing that and, and have done it at a scale that you know a seed stage CFO just wouldn't. And most, most of these companies don't have CFOs. So we really try to package our companies up from a financial perspective, too. By the time that they go and get to an Andreessen or a Sequoia or a Bessemer or GGV, they're like, wow, this is the cleanest data room, the cleanest financial model I've ever seen. And the amount of times that I think I've I've heard that from my friends at those firms is uh, I can count on probably more than two hands and I haven't even been there
0: that long. This is a question that was actually posed to me by another manager who's scaling and their AUM now allows them to start to hire a operations team that helps founders with a, a whole host of things, similar to what you guys are doing. The question though that they posed was, how should I think about KPIs? I had another firm that had chimed in and said, well, you know, we actually look at founder NPS scores. So we do, you know, these founder surveys and we ultimately look to test what is the overall benefit we're providing? How much value are we really driving? And NPS is a great way to do it because this show is tactical. Are there certain KPIs that you guys use to really assess the quality of performance of this uh, team that you've built?
1: Giving you all of our secret sauce right now. Um, <laughs> yeah, we, we, we have inputs and outputs on the portfolio impact side and, and really credit like Cassie and Rebecca who have implemented an incredibly powerful system there. So, on the people side, there are KPIs around dollars saved, but there are some other KPIs that regard, you know, or surround smaller projects, for instance. On the market development side, there are KPIs around the actual pipeline and the actual sales that they generate for the portfolio companies. And then what kind of sits on top of everything is in our CRM, we, we track all of the, um, basically all the interactions between or projects that we have with ourselves and our portfolio companies and those are broken out into like high, medium and low intensity and there are KPIs around high intensity projects, medium intensity projects, low intensity projects. And then at the end of the year, really I think it's actually twice a year, we do a founder CSAT, you know, or NPS score depending on how how they are different. I mean, we do a CSAT, we didn't find that NPS was that helpful, uh, or we, although we, we do ask the question, but the CSAT is important, which is the customer satisfaction score. And that is basically getting input on every single person on the team and every single team. And then we now can overlay that data on the interaction side of things to figure out, well, founders that have high intensity interactions are the happiest but you know what actually low intensity ones are pretty happy too because of x y and z reasons and interactions with this team
0: that makes total sense and it's very clear that what you guys have actually built is is working based on everything i've heard in the market so congratulations on on building such a great group going to the investment side for a second you talked about this earlier primary is New York focus. So focusing on companies that are only in New York, you're not looking at other geographies. And a lot of people have had the view that being single geofocus if it's not Silicon Valley is is hard because how many massive companies are going to be built. And if you're going to provide those like three to five x returns, fund after fund, you kind of have to be in every single great company that is in these smaller geos. Now, New York, Part of me is like, it's not really a small geo, but at the same time, I think you understand like just directionally the things that are, you probably have heard during your LP pitches. Tell us a little bit about why Geofocus? What does it actually mean to, to win in a, you know, a single geography?
1: New York is an incredible city that yes, 10 years ago, if we wanted to have this conversation, I would agree with you. But 2015, when primary was started, Ben and Brad had a key insight, and I think they've been spot on. I mean, if you fundamentally believe that there will be five, 10, 15 unicorns a year coming out of New York City, then you wanna be an LP in primary because we're gonna go out and we're gonna hunt down those companies and we're gonna get into them. And even if we're only in half of them, our returns are still gonna be extremely strong. And that's why I think from a focus perspective, it's incredibly powerful because it unlocks so much more in the portfolio impact side of things and kind of creates a network effect within our own city. And there's a reason why Andreessen just hired David Haber here in New York. And there's a reason why Lightspeed just announced that they have an office here in New York. And most of the seed funds are sending people out here. And most of the SF funds are sending people out here. So this city is going to get more and more and more competitive series a funds are coming in at faster paces than i've ever seen before but if we can continue to own seed with focus i feel like we're putting ourselves in a good position to succeed
0: so yeah so speaking about new york and you're right new york is a is a massive market that's evolved so dramatically in the last decade however today it's more competitive right you see, down, see downstream investors coming and doing seed you see more money you know flowing into the ecosystem and in today's world a lot of founders are indexing heavily toward investors that can work with speed you you're writing big checks you're not doing 250 you're doing three million dollar checks which means you have to have diligence you have to have conviction not only in the founder but the business model how do you manage speed versus diligence in today's world such that you're not missing on the be- the best opportunities because you can't move quick enough
1: we're really doing it in two ways And I want to give credit to Mark Gerson, who taught me about sense of urgency and really having a sense of urgency with everything that you do if you want to prioritize it. So when it comes to a diligence process, if I'm meeting with the founder and we like the deal or we like the founder, before the meeting's over, I'm literally going to open up my calendar and I'm going to schedule a meeting with that person for the next day. And we've now brought on an investment team of let's see six people five six people since the beginning of last year to help us speed up the diligence process and so folks like you know Leah Zhang who came over from Stripes Group or Tobias Citron who's been here you know for the last couple of years as an intern and Paige from Insight and Sam from Nomad Health and Kai like they're here essentially not only to just source deals but to create these deal pod structures that help us take a deal from day one, come up with the list of gotta believes that we need a diligence, go out, track down the answers to those questions. What does the market look like? Have those customer calls back channel the founder. And then once you've really gone through that process, which by having three people on a deal instead of one, you're able to do it a lot quicker. And we're gonna meet with that founder three times over the course of six days. And that helps us really start to get to know them. Now, I do think this is a period of time that um, I'd say a lot of mistakes will be made by many other firms. And maybe there will be some made by us as well, because you sometimes just don't know what you're missing. Maybe not even in terms of the market, but like the person. And it sucks because, like, I don't want this to be transactional. I want this to be as genuine as possible. And like, I want to be able to go have dinner with you and get to know you a lot more. And so, we're trying to make sure that we're checking all of the boxes that we were checking before, but in a little bit more of a condensed timeline. And, and that's, you know, worked out pretty well for us. With that said, you know, I've talked to multi-stage firms that have led some of the seed deals that we've looked at. And I'm like, well, did you look into X and Y? And they're like, nope, because it's like, why do they need to? Like, they're like, this is a tiny check for us. So we really push founders to work with seed firms, whether they work with us or not, that are at least doing the work. The other thing though that we've been doing is going earlier and earlier. Tobias and Brian here launched uh, the New York City Founder Fellowship, which is like our version of an equity-free, fee-free, you know, version of YC, or kind of like an on-deck. And we've had some incredible talent coming in. And like now we're getting to know them at the earliest stages. We're getting to see how the sausage is made, you know, how the idea evolves, how they learn speed of learning and then we can make bets on them even earlier and it's the same thing on the pre-seed side of things where we're getting to work with people that you know we really enjoy working with and we've gotten to know over the years
0: and and that's a great framework in terms of how to manage all these different variables that are in play right now which leads me to my uh, more global question to you so when you started investing it was at a time where prices were low and actually it's coincided with a time where it, as those companies have matured we're in a great capital market liquidity the exit environments are you know great so if you look at the performance that of funds that were 2008 to 2015 amazing performance it's it's not uncommon to see 5 to 10x seed funds right i mean we've just seen so many of them what do you think about the market today right the old adage is always buy low sell high are we in a place where innovation just is in a area where it's just rapidly evolving and growing so quickly, that even if you're buying higher relative to fundamentals, that in five, six, seven years, you'll still be able to sell higher? Or do you view this as, yeah, you know, valuations are high, and the best companies will continue to do it, but there is going to be some deterioration and maybe some carnage that happens if there is a downturn in, let's say, a couple of years now that we are going on 12 or 13 years in a bull run.
1: I think we're at a period of time where the pace of innovation is shifting at such a rapid rate that there really will be these massive companies that generate these really strong returns now that's not every company and that's not every market and not every company in every market has real moats and should be traded like a tech company but there are many markets that are going to have a new champion crowned that can generate a significant amount of enterprise value and returns for LPs and and ourselves. You know, looking broadly at the ecosystem today, and this is, you know, anecdotally from a primary and a New York perspective, we have more high quality founders that have seen scaling from 10 to 100 or 1000 now than we ever had before. Because the New York ecosystem is is really starting to mature. Secondly, you're getting better ideas than you've ever had before. And why is that? I think one there's been like a shift and a why now in a lot of these industries, but also because there's a democratization of access to information on the internet today. And you think about like the the amount of healthcare companies that are getting started that we see that are incredible, like. People are leaving Oscar and Rowe and Cedar and starting companies that have really strong moats and great tailwinds and massive markets and you back them. And then, you know, what's crazy is not only is the speed of innovation changing, but it's like the speed at which these companies can scale. I mean, we have a company in our portfolio that'll go from like zero last year when they just like pivoted to over like 50 this year. And it's like, whoa, like that's recurring revenue, you know, you know, it's, it's an incredibly powerful thing. And so, yeah, I mean, are people overpaying? Maybe, definitely, you know, in some deals, they certainly are, but there are certainly a lot of other companies out there that will live into it. Uh, but, but it is buyer beware and it, it's founder beware. Cause when you do end up taking on money at a ridiculously high valuation and you don't actually have product market fit, growing into that uh, might give you a little bit of digestion.
0: I think that is such an important point, And I've always talked to founders about that. Don't take too much money at too high a valuation until you're ready. Now, yes, there's money out there, and you don't want to undercapitalize yourself in this market. But it is it is founder and buyer beware for sure. I, I also agree with the uh, the point that the pace of innovation today is at breakneck speed. And you can look no further than the vaccine rollout using mRNA technology with Pfizer and, and Moderna. So the world has shifted. I'm personally very excited to see you know what the next couple of decades look like. I try to disassociate that with the, the financial aspect. It's too hard to, to know. And I've been long, around long enough to know that I'm not smart enough, nor I do I think many people are smart enough to actually project what the financial markets are going to look like for the next five years, let alone the next year. So let's go to our last segment, which is our heat check. I'm going to ask you three questions rapid fire. The first being, what is the most counterintuitive lesson you've learned as a, as a venture investor?
1: People always say founder first, and I do agree. But you put a good founder in a bad market, the market will keep its reputation and the founder won't. So you need to make sure that you back a founder that will recognize when they're in a bad market. And they'll move over to a different one.
0: <laughs> uh, and we, we do see that quite often and, and having that awareness. Well, let's talk about founders. And you know, you've invested in companies like Latch at the early stages. You'll, you probably have spent enough time looking at companies where you're going to miss companies too. Looking back in your career, is there a company that you look back on that you missed that's turned out to be a great company and you learned a particular specific lesson from if so, tell us who the company is, or if you're comfortable with, and what you actually learned from that miss.
1: My anti portfolio has a has a good size to it, but I, I will use I will use Leaflink as the example here. You know, Ryan Smith actually has become a great friend, and I was at uh, Corrigent Ventures at the time when we looked at Leaflink, and I remember you know asking a lot of questions about well what's your engagement like and you're you know this and that on these features and are people really using it and he wasn't really like tracking that much of the data in the early days like there wasn't the foundation laid and you know he had sold a company before um and I remember like thinking how good is this guy and you know at the same time I knew his market timing was really good And I knew he was really, really thoughtful, really thoughtful, and learned super fast and had done it before. Uh, But at the end of the day, you know, there was some extenuating circumstances that made it so we didn't win the deal. Uh, And then I ended up leaving Corrigine. But if there was a lesson that I learned there, it was definitely like, stay in touch with founders as much as possible that you really believe in. And then also, There's a lot of things that founders just don't have the time for in the early days. And if they have a bias for action and they know how to sell and they know how to build product, tracking when you're like two people in a closet is like not necessarily something that needs to happen.
0: Playing the long game and keeping mind share is a a really good lesson to learn for for anybody. My final question, just because you have mentioned guys like Mark and Ryan and Brad and Ben, but is there an investor out, out there that you know, particularly inspires you, given the way they think about things? If so, like, who is that and, and what about them?
1: My answer, I don't know if you're gonna accept it, is Bill Campbell. Uh, you know, Bill Campbell was the executive coach to folks like Steve Jobs uh, and Eric Schmidt, the guys over at Google. And long-term, like, I really do see myself getting into the executive coaching world. You know, my mom's a therapist, my dad's an entrepreneur. And I feel like the best investors really are generous with their time and help not only like the company at the company level and like the metrics level and are thinking about strategy, but they are helping the psychology of the founder and they care deeply about all of the employees within the organization. And I'll tell you really quickly, you know, having backed the guys at Latch and then been at the stock exchange when they were going public the other day, seeing the employees that were there since day one, like it gave me the chills. You know, it was awesome. And I was so overcome with like gratitude that I like walked up to all of them that I remembered and I was giving them hugs and like just saying thank you. And and Bill Campbell is the type of person that more investors should really
0: admire and try to be like. A lot of people who don't know Bill, just because he is he is a Silicon Valley legend and obviously coached some of the best founders, entrepreneurs and VCs. You know, I don't think he started his career in, in tech until he was in his early 40s, coming off as being a football coach, right? And there's a great book out there on Bill uh, that's called Trillion Dollar Coach, which is a great read. So. I definitely will accept the answer because privately, a lot of people have uh, told me the impact Bill has had on them. Uh, Jason, this has been a lot of fun. Congratulations on being promoted to partner as part of Fund 3. Excited for what you guys are doing in New York and, and look forward to, uh, you know, continue to track the story. Thanks, man. Appreciate you having me. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Venture Unlocked. We really hope you enjoyed our conversation with Jason. To learn more about him and primary ventures, be sure to go to ventureunlocked.substack.com for detailed notes on the show, as well as my ongoing commentary about the world of venture capital. Venture Unlocked is also available on iTunes and Spotify for download. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and a review as it really helps us out. And hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Unlocked episode as soon as it's released.